0: Hello, everyone. Today, we are continuing the conversation on race and justice. Last week, Henry and Art did an amazing job. For anyone listening that has not heard last week's episode, I would greatly encourage you to go back and listen before listening to this episode. It lays a lot of good groundwork to what will be discussed here. In this episode, we are going to hear from a few more voices and continue this conversation. I am not gonna say more because I already gave a long intro last week, but I want to reemphasize one more thing. Seriously, if you have not listened to last week's episode, please go do so before listening to this one. And also stick around at the end of this episode to get some important information on our next episode in this series. And with that, let's head into the episode. Alright, you guys ready? Y'all ready. Awesome. Well, hello everyone. Hello Side B family, Side Beers. Want to welcome you back to another episode of Life on Side B. And we are continuing this conversation that was started last week with the amazing episode that Henry and Art did mm-hmm. on race and justice in here in America and Really, throughout the world. Um, so, I am so happy to have here both familiar voices and new voices. Um, so, I'm going to go through and introduce everyone. First of all, we have my very own brother, the Colombian himself, Ed Guzman. <laughs> here
1: we are. Yes, yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we have the OG of Life on Site B herself, Meg Botts. Y'all. Yes.
2: Hello, everybody. It's great to be back.
0: Yes, and we have the amazing Side B Pastor, New York Realness, (laughs) Rainbow. Hi, everybody. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) And joining us for the first time, I'm so excited. We have Mr. Paul Anthony Turner. Hey, everybody. So would you like to give a little introduction to yourself for people who might not know you?
3: Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So my name is Paul Anthony Turner from Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I don't even know what else to say. I I love philosophy, super duper gay, and I love
0: Jesus. (laughs) Those are all the things that matter. (laughs) (laughs) Great. I'm so glad you're here. After getting to talk so much, I uh, it has been something I've been really excited about having you on the podcast. Thank you. And all of you guys to have you all back and on for the first time. So, um, yeah, I'm going to more be here in the background asking questions and just more initiating conversation. And I just think you each have great things to bring to this conversation that we are talking um in this IB world in the entire country in the entire world because this is not even just an american conversation happening now it's something that's happening all over the world as i know you ed especially know yes um and so um first of all i would like to start out and i'm just going to ask this question and please you guys feel free to add in your thoughts and everything as we go on um so with everything that's happened what has been your feelings on what has recently happened in our, con- in, in our country here in the United States surrounding the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd and the events that followed?
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful that, um, that, ju- that we're finally seeing the wheels of justice seem to be turning. And it's unfortunate that it came at the expense of yet more Black lives instead of – that's the thing. It's like why couldn't we just go ahead and do these justice measures, take these justice measures without it requiring the lives of three other um, black people? Um, I am thankful that people are, waking, are are waking up right now. This COVID season has um, s- somehow given people time to be able to see um, things more clearly because we're not you know as hectically rushing around and getting distracted. And so I'm really thankful for that, even though I'm I'm just heartbroken still at the three, um, these three lives that we lost, three other pointless deaths, um, people who were taken from us too soon. Meg,
0: do you have anything you'd like to share?
2: Yeah, uh, man, there's so many emotions that I have just thinking about um, the the murders of these black lives, and um, I think for for myself, I. Uh, The past season, I've been going through actually a racial literacy, a racial literacy intensive course. And the very last week of my course was when the videos of George Floyd went viral and the protests started happening. And so before that, Mm. uh, I had heard the news of Ahmaud Arbery and um, me and my classmates were processing that together. And. Kind of watching the social media response, which I think was, uh, as Paul mentioned, just really elevated by the fact that a lot of us are home more often. And social media is kind of how we're we're getting a pulse for a lot of us on the world around us. And I was watching the response and uh, kind of expecting more of a silence or a um, not even realizing that this was something that happened uh, from From the standpoint of my white friends and then um, my black friends and friends of color looking at this and and really processing it and also seeing the silence of their uh, white friends and Mm. when brianna taylor's death happened um i was just reading some of the information about that and uh just how it very obviously was was a deep injustice and there's talk about how because she was female, it wasn't in the news as much. And I think also because there wasn't video evidence. And then with George Floyd, um, just the fact that there was a video going around. And I I personally didn't watch the video, but um, just I live in Denver and a lot of the protests started happening. And um, so I, I had been very aware of just a lot of this historic baggage coming to the surface as a result of these murders. And um, yeah, just been seeking to be intentional in engaging with that and speaking about that instead of um, being someone else who's going to be silent about that.
0: Yeah. And Meg, I would like to ask you another kind of follow-up question with that. Sure. Is something that Henry and Art talked about in the first episode was especially with the death of Ahmad Arbery, experiencing, at least on social media,
2: mm-hmm.
0: this kind of division in between the reality of white Americans and mm-hmm. um, like Americans of color, in that there were so many white people that just almost seemed to either, either whether they knew about it, there was no conversation happening. And it seemed like many didn't even know mm-hmm. about it was mm-hmm. happening. Would you say, that you experienced that like in a matter of the people that you saw in your social media as a white person?
2: Mm -hmm. I think because I had started to build more uh, influence from people of color on my social media, um, just following different pages and uh, just trying to really pay attention to my friends of color and what they're saying. um, I, I was getting more of that news to my feed. Um, but I think because a lot of racial segregation still very much exists and persists in, um, in our country. And, um, I think a lot of times even with white people, we can kind of self select out of those conversations because we're not used to being around them or we can get, um, Tired really quickly about conversations about race because it isn't something that we have to talk about. Um, so I think mm-hmm. that that's maybe some of the reasons behind um, why white communities don't tend to uh, either receive or pay attention to um, news of pl- police brutality and things like that. But I definitely did notice that. And I w- I think my response was, there's a lack of heartbreak here. We, um, we as white people can easily see this as, oh, there's more bad news that is affecting other people. And I think also a lot of white communities with, um, coronavirus and the pandemic, we're, we're in jobs and spaces where, um, our communities are less prone to get infected. And so I think we can kind of, we can more easily look at these, um, realities from a sort of ivory tower and so there's not the heartbreak we can easily move on with our lives and we can we can feel sad but then just say oh we uh there's nothing we can do that was that was one incident and I'm not a cop and I'm not mean to anybody and um we don't really have a narrative for for what to do with that or how how to feel about that and so we kind of just disengage
1: Ed, what do you think? Um I've been pondering in uh, this whole issue, so to speak. And as a non-USA citizen, but I'm a resident, uh, I'm here on an F-1 visa, which means I'm a legal student, a grad student, and I am a, a person of color. I'm learning the language. Mm-hmm. Um, from from where I am I am from, I am just a person. Uh you know? So that is one of the first things that strike me. Um the difference in the culture, so to speak. Um one of the things I have love about my in uh, inheritance or heritage, heritage sorry and I'll elaborate why this is important too answer the question um genetic genetically speaking i'm 25 percent black i mean literally <laughs> and for me that has always been something awesome like dude i i got so many good stuff one of your grandfathers is black. yeah my mm-hmm. yeah my grandfather is black so one is black one is a indian tribal and one is white was white and the other was like a mix between me a mulatto and white. So it's a weird mix. (laughs) But all of that to say is like something that I grew up feeling proud of. Like who makes me unique is that I have elements of different uh, races in me. So there is a a quote, I'm going to try to say it in English. I'm sure I'm not going to get it 100% right, but you're going to get the spirit of what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it is uh, for those who do not know their history, they are condemned to repeat it. Mm-hmm. So personally, during all these processes, like there must be a story behind this. Why this happened. is not something that just erupt and out of the blue happened. It must have happened in the past, and there are consequences from the past that are repeated now. And because I do not know the history, I cannot assess the reality in the same way uh, that other people can. So for me, it has been a time to sit quietly and listen and trying to think and uh, seat myself in the position of those of color growing up here in America, um, black, uh, brothers and sisters and thinking about their experiences, their parents' experiences and their grandparents' experiences and all of that, that built upon to them. What, what is their experience? But also sitting and trying to think and feel how a white American and a white Christian person and as of now their parents and their grandparents how did they grow up and uh, how why they see the world the way they see they see it and from that point of view trying to understand and see what part do i play in all of this because um to close that thought is i feel even as an not being an, a U.S. citizen, I do play a part on this. And my silence is also complicity to what's happening. But also the way I speak, the way I interact, the way I do everything should come from a place of love and in allowing people to know that they are broken and they made mistakes, but challenge me and others to do better. And personally, uh, about the uh, video, uh, that is still traumatizing for me to hear somebody in the country that for most people speaks about freedom. Like if you are American, you are free. That's mm-hmm. the whole spirit, you know, like this is the uh, line of the free and the brave and have somebody saying, I cannot breathe and then died is just shocking. And it, it, it breaks things in me that I cannot even put into words. I have another question for you. But before we do that,
0: Ray, I would love to hear um, about your feelings and thoughts with everything that's happened. Yeah.
4: Um, Yeah, I just want to follow up Ed's thought and uh, say that I think it's very admirable that Ed speaks about uh, just his conviction to uh, uh, care and to say something about things that are going on in a country that he doesn't even live in. And I think that's a very admirable quality to take on. Um, and I think that has, uh, characterized much of the response that I've seen, um, specifically from the Asian community. Um, I love everything that's been said so far. I think the, the one thing I'll add is that this time has been a very, um, uh, challenging one for, um, a lot of Asian Americans to even just look back in our own history, um, and to realize that, um, uh black people and the black community have been behind so many of the civil rights movements uh specifically for the asian community the black people spoke out um for all kinds of uh uh, exclusionary acts against the chinese against the japanese in the past and uh, that's something that we owe um many of our freedoms to And so one of the things that has been really challenging the Asian community during this time is that are you going to essentially return the favor? Are are we going to speak up on behalf of people whose interests might not be our own, but who we owe so much to? Um, I think that's been uh, a lot of what has been uh, going on, a lot uh, lot of what our eyes have been open to. Um, It's been a challenge for us to learn about history, um, to rethink some of our history as well and to also just, uh, you know, understand, you know, the, the cries and the, and the, and the needs and the, the hurts and the pains of people who, um, you know, we, we, again, once, once again, we are called to stick up for, we're called to speak out on behalf of, and we're called to fight
2: for as well.
0: Oh, um, no. And I think that's really good. Um, so to clarify one thing, I did want to clarify one thing. Um, so Ed does live in the United States. He is, just a non-citizen. Yes. I right? live
1: under, yes, an F1 visa. f I am visa. a student. Yeah.
0: Um, but, um, no, and I, yeah, I really love what you're saying. And I've, I, I think what you were sharing is so important. Um, I, I've loved seeing some of the stuff you've put on social media, right? Um, and I, I would love to hear about some of your experiences of in the events that has followed. Uh, I know that you have been a part of many of the marches and the protests that have in in new york city and is there anything from those experiences that you would like to share
4: yeah yeah it it, especially in the beginning there's so much energy behind uh protesting and gathering and um so much energy but put behind social media as well um in terms of spreading awareness uh sharing more and more videos uh all the kinds of things right um and you know, it, it does get overwhelming. It can be very overwhelming. It can be very challenging to kind of sift through all of the bits of information, all of the opportunities, all the stories, all the videos, um, and, and to keep yourself sane as well, um, uh, especially just seeing so much pain and hurt in this world. Um, and so I think uh, at the beginning, I had to really, really just sit down and reflect on uh, what God was calling me to uh, uh respond to, how God was calling me to respond, and um I've had just so many uh siblings uh, uh to walk alongside me uh very patiently during this process. Um uh my friend Darren Calhoun, he's uh he actually gave um a few uh kind of short clips on Facebook. There were these lessons on how to protest in an effective way, and he uh talked all about um things like how the protest uh, should have a very defined leader. Uh, a very defined goal, um, uh, just very clear action steps. And I thought that that was so, so uh, insightful and so great because it's so um, easy to throw ourselves behind um, uh, a widespread kind of energy. And um, and there's so many protests going on and uh, there was literally two or three protests happening in New York City every single day. And it's like, um, obviously it's so difficult for one person to attend all of them. So I think mm-hmm. it was very helpful to hear that there were some... Eff- Helpful guidelines as to how to uh, sift through kind of uh, opportunities that we have, how to decide which one uh, we believe will be the most effective, uh, and how to also figure out yeah, just uh, what um, what action steps uh, would be taken from them. And so, actually, one of the things that I ended up doing was uh, I started to focus more on the protests organized by local churches and uh, church leaders in the area, because I know that, um, especially being a church pastor myself. Uh, it's not just about joining together in this one moment to protest, but it's also about building that connection, that network of relationships that can turn into more opportunities in the future. You know, now that I'm connected with these pastors, what ministries can I help them out with in the future? Uh, what needs can my church help them fulfill in the future? And uh, how can we continue to partner together for
1: uh, the future? Hey, Ray, may I ask you a question? Sure. Um, from your perspective what like what it's what's the vision of the church uh in new york uh, in this specific matter i'm asking you because um as i uh, i work for a church and we partner with many churches around the country of colombia no no i i I work for a church in colombia but we partner with many churches and organizations here in the US thank you for the clarification mm-hmm. so as we do that uh one thing i have seen is that it, the vision and the action of the church in their understanding of the topic and their reactions are uh be, has a really wide variety a uh, big spectrum based on where they are located, the kind of uh, a congregation they pastor. So, but we have a few friends in New York and I feel for the little I know, the vision and the optics and the, and how the church in New York sees these um, specific issue is very unique. Would you mind sharing? Or maybe I'm totally wrong, I'm just learning. Oh, no.
4: Sure. I'm just trying to understand your question a little bit. Uh, Yeah, I think um, uh, one of the things that uh, we can uh, definitely see and uh, one thing that we can understand is that um, how the church sees uh, its call um, is very different, let's say, in New York uh, versus somewhere in suburban Ohio, right? Um, And so uh, there are just very different uh, contexts, very different populations, very different demographics, and very different needs as well. And so I, that's actually why I think it's so important for the church to be the church during this time, because the church uh, is responsible for responding to its local context, um, and the church is responsible for understanding the needs of its local context as well. And I think that's something that gets lost in the conversation, because there are so many, uh, especially Christian leaders who are saying, oh, look, well, I don't see this as a reality for my area, I don't see this as a reality for uh, the context mm-hmm. we live in or the, the 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 people that our church serves um and so then i would really encourage the church to um to really think about what what is god god calling you to do in this area or where is god calling you to partner with the church in new york city so that you can uh broaden your horizons and and open your mind to to things that are happening in the rest of the world so i think it's important to make that distinction there too so that people don't get caught in this whole like oh well if i don't see it then there's there's Mm -hmm. no responsibility
1: to
0: -hmm. to, to say anything about it you know yeah thank you yeah i i think that that connects to like uh i don't i don't know if i want to call it like well an error of thinking that i many times see in churches around the country um that both in the race conversation and the sexuality conversation i think there's so many times where there's churches that for instance maybe their whole entire congregation is white and so they therefore think oh well we don't need to engage in the race conversation because our our congregation is white and it's like no (laughs) that's exactly the reason you need to come to engage in this conversation the same with when you have churches that say oh well i don't have any lgbt people in my church we don't need to talk about this like well (laughs) you do (laughs) And um, so that kind of leads to my next question that I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts on. Um, like, what do you see as the ways that, you know, like Ray was talking about, the ways that churches has, the church has responded well or poorly to racism? Um, Paul, do you want to go first?
3: Sure. The ways in which the church has responded poorly or well, or well. to racism.
0: And <laughs> it can be from your parents or nationally.
3: Right.
1: <laughs> that lot. Say yeah,
3: a lot. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot, there's right? a pregnant laugh. Um, Lord, I don't want to be cynical, but <laughs> but <you> know, unfortunately <laughs> the reality is we have, we don't respond well to matters of race. I think, you know, things, there are, there are voices, but we, um, as a whole, Christianity has not done, done very well. And it, Christianity in the United States, we have, we've not done well. We have lights here and there. And they're doing a fantastic job, but you know, as a as a whole, um, we're not we're not doing too hot. And I think a lot of it is like what you guys are saying. As long as you know, a lot of a lot of churches, um, as long as they don't have, they don't you know, as long as the congregants don't see racism or they don't perceive that they are being racist or they have racist ideologies, as long as they perceive that or they're thinking that way, um, they think you know they don't have any responsibility. When you don't think that you have a responsibility to something. You're not gonna, you know, seek to do something about something, um, and so I think that we need to realize that every, speaking in the United States, um, we need to realize that we are all connected in, in a web of different. There's, there's all kinds of different social dynamics that tie us all together. So no one is really, um, we're not, we're not actually disconnected from something, even though it might be, it might not be directly near you. It might not be directly a part of your your um, um, your your immediate experience because we're all part of this nation um, because we're all part of the same church the same religious institution as we're you know being Christians we have to realize that we are all connected to the issues that surround us whether very near or very far um, I think that until until Christians all Christians realize that they are connected to each other. They're connected to all the different social issues, especially race issues. We're not going to, we're not, we're going to continue to see the, the, the lack, the dearth of uh, robust answers to racism that we, that we so desperate, that we so desperately need. Um, yeah. So unfortunately I don't, I don't, I see it as mostly we have not done very much. We've, we have definitely made some progress, but a, a lot of it is, is, is painfully slow. Um, especially when you, when we claim to follow, um, Jesus of the, of the Bible, who we see him, you know, standing up for, for, for people who were being kept out of the temple. The Gentiles are being kept out of the temple from worshiping in the one place where they were allowed to worship because the, um, the Jews had set up their, their merchandise in in the one place they were allowed to worship and so forth. You know, it's, it's interesting that we aren't very concerned because we don't, we don't see the concerns of others as being near to us, um, but Jesus went and made the concerns of the Gentiles a concern of His. He's a, you know He was a Jewish man; He didn't have to care. Um, he was privileged in in his particular social context, but He went out and He made the concerns of the Gentiles who were being oppressed. He made it His own concern, and so that's mm-hmm. what I would tell Christians if we're going to move away from you know not having very good answers to racism. For going to be able to get there, we have to go out and make those concerns our concerns. Hopefully that answers.
0: <laughs> I think that's great. And before moving on, I actually had another follow-up question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're talking about the the conversation of race. Um, but also then there's so many side um, you know, side B Christians, LGBT Christians in general, that then are in this area of intersectionality between being an LGBT person in the church and being a Mm. person of color in the church. And, um, I would love to hear your thoughts on that intersectionality experience of being Mm. in church where you fit into both of these conversations. You know, are you?
3: Yeah. Oh, I could definitely comment on that. Um, it's, you know what, one thing I've I've realized is how, how tiring it can be. Um, Mm because you're not just dealing with being gay and you're not just dealing with being black you're dealing with both of them at the same time and it's it's kind of when they when they get added together it's not like just doing one plus one is equal to two it's one plus one is equal to three it becomes exacerbated and and it grows the 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 stress of it all is actually it grows exponentially um and it's, is it's, it's very tiring and it, you, you struggle with, you struggle with how do I, like, which thing do I give precedent to, or which one do I give uh, my, my primary concern or attention to, or how might I navigate both in this context? Um, yeah, there have been situations where, um, where, for instance, I was at, I was speaking at seminary, when I, when I was in seminary and I would comment on, uh, often, you know, I would talk about LGBT issues in front in front of the classrooms, and I would um, I would share about you know my experience as an LGBT person, and obviously everyone can say I'm black, and sometimes I would draw on my experience as a black person and the the racism I've experienced, whether explicit or or implicit, as as an example. It's it's very interesting to it's very interesting how um, my experience as a queer person, some of the same things I experienced there are actually very much the same or similar to what um to what i experienced as a black person and mm-hmm. so which is why often um, queer theory and critical race theory are are done in in tandem um because some of the same racial stru- excuse me some of the same structures of oppression um that are used to oppress both groups you know, those, those same structures are used to, to oppress both groups um so yeah I I see my my blackness and my queerness as greatly overlapped um, and as greatly overlapping, and they exacerbate each other, I guess, if I were to say that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Meg, do you have any thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Something that I've noticed about the ways the church has responded in general poorly to racism is a lot of churches that are predominantly white tend to try to just like look good. Like our response is very defensive. Like, Oh, that's not me. Like, that's not my heart. Let me try to prove to everybody um, with like all these pieces of evidence that like, this isn't my problem, basically, um, that I'm not a racist and yeah. our church is racist and we're doing great. And um, I think of the, the verse where it says, like, don't partake in the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And I think mm. we have a huge uh, aversion to exposing, like, examining our hearts and examining even our systems that are built by human hearts and are also it, also very much prone to sin and corruption. We, we're afraid to look at those and say, wow, um, you know, like kind of the prayer of David, like, examine my heart and my ways and see um, if there's any sinful or wrong way within me. Like, we're not willing to admit that. Um, Mm. And I think a lot of that comes from this this understanding in white culture of kind of just definitions of racism and white supremacy. When white people think of racism, we think of individual acts of meanness, Mm-hmm. From one individual white person who is very um, loudly uh, anti-black and knows it and is proud of it and is doing something hateful toward a black person, when when you ask a person of color what racism is, though, it's not individual; it's a systemic thing, and it's this reality, basically, an oxygen that we breathe that um, mm. whiteness is normalized and. White people don't have to acknowledge that we actually have a culture and we have biases, and uh, we actually were were the ones who uh, were responsible for creating um, power gradients and the social construct of race. And so we we individualize it. Also, with white supremacy, we think of like the Ku Klux Klaner who um, who hates someone, and we say, "Oh, I'm not a white supremacist." But white supremacy, the real definition of that is that whiteness is um, centered, it's seen as um, kind of the default, and it's it's better, and then anything else is kind of other. And um, there's a marginalization that happens that, that um, there are elements of that in my own heart, in my church, and... Um, Unless I'm able to acknowledge that, I'm actually gonna be perpetuating the very systems that I say I'm not a part of.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and well and one thing that I think is really good there with what you're saying is I well, two things. First of all, I, I totally agree, like as a white person, I actually had a conversation with a loved one not too long ago where we were having a conversation about um about race and um they they brought up that whole entire thing where we can't we we can't understand that that what we think of as just culture is white culture that's just been normalized and made the default of everything within our within Mm -hmm. our society yeah and to the point where you know you'll get these questions from white people like well then where's the white channel or the white music and then i go everywhere right (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) correct Because I think it's a matter of like that we go to this place of wanting to, oh, I need to prove that I'm not a racist. I need Mm -hmm. to prove that I'm not this stuff, rather than acknowledging the system that we live in and how it props us up. Actually, Ed and I were just having a conversation about this not too long ago, about the very fact of acknowledging that the reason I got my job in the Christian Missionary Alliance is because I am white and have a white name. And to explain why that is, is you want to explain what happened?
1: Tell that and then I okay. jump into.
0: Because um, we had an issue in our in our church where everyone that was in the development area was Latino and with a Latino name and they would call and to try. And with a
1: Latino accent. And with what a Latino mean?
0: accent. And they would call to make um, connections and it would go nowhere. But then I would call the same person with the same message at the same time and in 10 minutes, <clears> it, everything automatically fell into place and we had mm-hmm. partnerships and we had connections and we had all of that, even though literally it was simply my name and my accent and my race that ended up making that connection. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well. we, we live in this, in this society where white and American is the default mm-hmm. and just naturally gets lifted up above.
1: it. To continue there. Um, I, I, uh, really like what you make you were saying about your own whiteness (laughs) so to speak Mm -hmm. but i want to include myself there because Mm -hmm. i think we all have a part to play so Mm -hmm. i i cannot just sit here and say yes the white people they are fault. they are just the only one to blame but i'm brown and you know i I am assessing this from the christian culture so Mm -hmm. as a brown person and Christian, in our brown-like churches, like, oh, whites are like this. They are not as committed because they do not pray as we do. Oh, they do not know this because... So we have all... We are a racist as well to our own brothers and sisters uh, by a default because we feel that we are better in other areas. So we can see... They fall in their processes, but not in our own process. So I, I am personally racist. I have found that, and the more I examined myself, the more I see my own racism in many things. In that light, scared the crap out of me. <laughs> so to speak, like, oh God, I did not know that I was part of the whole problem. But one of the main things. That has been uh, in my heart uh, uh, seeing the church, we as the church, and its response to this issue and also the LGBT plus community is that most of Christianity, we don't know what the kingdom of God is mm-hmm. or the new creation. Mm-hmm. So we don't fully understand it or we have a distorted uh, understanding, uh, um, or we don't fully support what the kingdom of God really is. Mm-hmm. You know, so we lower the kingdom of God to our cultural experiences and, and mm-hmm. experiences and expectations. Mm-hmm. So, if we were to really evaluate what the kingdom of God is and, and see it from God's point of view. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, there is a a, a very clear path in how that kingdom affects everything. And you yes. see hints in many places and throughout the Bible. So many times what I see is our reactions to all of this is in the core, one of the issues is that we don't really know what do we believe. And also it is the part that uh, we are citizens of two, uh, of, we're citizens of a country, mm-hmm. in my case, uh, Colombia, but I'm arrested here, so I need to abide by the laws of this country respect it and love it. But my number one alliance or allegiance, <laughs> citizenship, is to a kingdom. Yes. With the kingdom of heaven. And mm-hmm. that kingdom is ruled by a kind king. Who loves equality? Who empowers the oppressed? You see. Yes. So, if as a church we were to equip our people to actually know what Christianity is about yeah. and how Christianity changed the core DNA of our culture, then these kind of uh, struggles wouldn't be as prominent because we will see that our understanding of what our culture, where privileges are, are distorted to the real truth of what christ is all about so yes. i think for me has been a process to say snap out of head. Yeah. <laughs> mm. you, you are, mm. it you you're in this world and the kingdom that you are part of transform the people from the inside out but it does not stop in one person it affects everything around yes. the economic mm. system the way you relate to people, the way you see people, the way you empower women, the way you give opportunity to the poor, the way you built your education system, everything is comes out of that understanding yes, of what the kingdom absolutely. of
2: God is. Ed, I love how you go into Christian teleology, this idea of what is our end as followers of Christ. And I think a lot of uh, people in the white faith community when we learn about redemption uh and the gospel it's kind of this vague idea of jesus came to save the world and jesus came to help me face my individual sin so so the individual aspect is like okay i need to focus on my individual sins and figure out what to do with those with jesus and be forgiven of those and repent of those. Uh, And then also in some really vague sense, like Jesus saved the world. And we don't really get into the details of that. But like when we look at the Lord's Prayer, Jesus asks us to pray uh, that God's kingdom would come and his will be done on earth as it is Mm -hmm. in heaven. And I think it's what I've seen in the past couple decades in the white churches that we've started to kind of bring bring that theology into the workplace. Like, okay, uh, my, my faith and the gospel has something to do with my work and what I do during the day. Uh, but there has been a disconnect for many decades in, in regard to, um, different social issues and things like, um, poverty and systemic injustice and racism. And, um, it's not going to come naturally for the white church to suddenly say, "Oh, um, this is a a gospel kind of thing. This is a redemption thing, and this actually has to do with this this idea of um, shalom that that Christ wants to bring peace and this wholeness with all of creation, that all things are being new." Mm-hmm. And I think when we um, when we lean more into Uh, what the scriptures say about teleology and shalom in the kingdom. We realize that um, our societies are part of uh, what Christ wants to bring his presence into and his justice and mercy. And um, Mm -hmm. we find that social justice and the gospel are not contradictory, but actually um, the gospel informs our concern for social justice and demands that we bring our presence.
1: Mm. Wow. Well, may I say one more thing there? Absolutely. Is, um, the other day we were talking with some of our family and um, uh, I love economics and business and, and entrepreneurship. That's where I, f- I feel passionate about in, in so to speak. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about the economic model of the U.S which is, which one? Capitalism, Mm -hmm. capitalism, Mm -hmm. So I was hearing, and then one person was really clear. It says, he's a businessman, very successful. He said, it is amazing because it's based on greed. So the more you get, so you can compete to get the better people for you to work against other people so you can get as much as you can. And that's why we're so prosperous. Mm -hmm. this family member, he is a strong Christian, but what I I took a step back and I started thinking, okay, and we're talking about also that this was the best system, so to speak. Like this is done, job done. This is the best we mm-hmm. can get. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, like, okay, wait. In the creation, God says that was good, and He make us co-creators, which means that there is always way ways to make it better. And second, yes. the whole point that the motor, the engine of the whole economic system is greed coming from a Christian nation is all against what we believe as Christians. Mm-hmm. How in the world, a society that is based on individualism and greed is going to give any chance to those who are in the bottom? Yeah. Never, because their advantage is my disadvantage, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think part of everything that we need to assess in all of this process is how even our economic system works, and there must be better ways to do it, and we need to seek God and challenge each other to say, God gave us a brain, God gave us his spirit, and he is giving us the community to think and see how can we do this better, and not just settle for what we already have that works for the majority, but not for everybody.
2: Yes.
4: Yeah, that's really good. Hmm. I just wanted to uh, I'll add uh, um, kind of uh, bringing it uh, back to the kind of the church side of it and how churches respond and stuff like that. And one of the things that I've uh, seen a lot in churches is this desire not to enter into the realm of politics. You know, you just want to focus more on the pastoral care, on the pastoral mm-hmm. side, and we don't want to kind of touch politics or deal with it. Um, churches are engaged in politics, whether they like it or not, and they will be as long as they get tax breaks from the government. Um, But uh, I saw one of my friends post something really good the other day. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but he said, um, if uh, your church has, let's say, 10 to 15 uh, Black people who are fearing for their lives on the streets because they aren't sure if the next cop they meet is going to uh, be their death, um, then is that a pastoral issue or is that a politics issue? Mm -hmm. If you have 10 to 15 people in your church who are, uh, uh, immigrants, uh, Latino or Hispanic, and they are fearing that they might be deported by the government at, at mm-hmm. any given moment, is that a pastoral yes. issue or is that a political issue? Uh, if you have 10 to 15, uh, Asians who are being attacked on the streets because of coronavirus fears, is that a pastoral or is that a political issue? So it was just a really great way of, mm. uh, reframing the issue and to really, uh, Enable us to think uh, outside of ourselves and to think about the real issues that people are facing nowadays, and what
0: God is calling the church to respond to in this country yeah. right now. Yeah, that's that's really really good. And you know, Ray, you mentioned about the attacks against Asians that have occurred because of fears of the coronavirus. Uh, could you comment a little bit more on that as well?
4: Sure. Uh, so especially back when uh, the pandemic first hit the States, Uh, there was just a lot of uh, misrepresentation, a lot of misreporting. One good example is that um, a New York magazine um, used a picture of an Asian man wearing a face mask in uh, Queens, New York, uh, to announce that the coronavirus had come to America. Um, Interestingly enough, the person who brought it to New York City in the first place was and a woman who traveled to Iran, and she was from Manhattan. So not at all related to uh, the picture that they use, nor the kind of representation that they put forth. Um, but that image stays in people's minds. Uh, that image, when it's shared, when it's uh, passed around, that image st- stays in people's minds. And uh, suddenly, uh, something that's always existed, by the way, um, Asian people wearing face masks because... You know, that's a norm for them in Asia, you know, even before this pandemic uh, suddenly becomes a source of fear uh, and panic for people. Um, And obviously we see it manifest in the violent attacks. Uh, There was an Asian woman in Brooklyn who got acid poured on her face, Um, a woman in Minnesota who got kicked in the face. By three teenagers who kind of were berating her for being Asian, and finally we did have an incident in Texas where uh, a man, uh, you know, walked into a, a department store and. Uh, attacked uh, with a gun um, an Asian family uh, because he thought that they were Chinese. So uh, once again, just all these kinds of uh, misreporting, misrepresentation, and um, the the rhetoric that's used to describe the
0: pandemic as well has contributed to a lot of these things. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, and actually kind of linking to that, Ed, could you share, I, I would love for you to share a little bit about, as you said, entering into this conversation as someone who has the lived majority of your life outside of the United States. Uh-huh. And can you share a little bit of your experiences once you got to the United States of some of the kind of um, experiences you had with Christians and what their assumptions of you as a Latino, uh, those yes. kind of things?
1: Yeah, 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 sure. Um, well, normally as a Colombian, I cannot speak for the rest, but in our culture in Colombia, we see, or some people, See the U.S. like, well, you can live the American dream, so to speak. You know, you have the opportunity to grow economically. You get to have a better life. Well, what many people. So when I came here to the States, that was like to study back in two thousand seven or eight, so to speak. Um, it was kind of hard uh, for me to break some stereotypes so to speak, uh, because as soon as people saw me, because you see me, you can tell, duh, I'm Latino, <laughs> uh, and they hear my accent, it looks like as soon as they see that and hear me, hear the accent, no matter what I would say, they wouldn't listen to me, to my words, but just to what they they were just seeing. So every, not everybody, but majority of people, Assumed that I was here illegal. And I got offered several jobs in uh, construction, which is not a bad thing. But I was not looking for a job in construction or cleaning pools or doing, uh, what is the name? Loan work. Long work. And it, it was also interesting for, for them when I tried to talk about economics and um, development and investment, and politics, and all the things. And, and it was literally, like I was invisible to what I was saying. Like, that's it, you cannot, there is no other way. You you are poor because you're brown. That's it, there is no other way you're here. But then after a while, when I started speaking with people, um, at that time I didn't have many Christian pe- friends, they were just people. They yeah. yeah, they said, oh, Okay, I get it. You are Colombian, cocaine, drugs, of course. That's why you are not poor. Yeah, because that's what you do, right? That's why your dad does, you know? Oh, Pablo Escobar. So it is kind of complex when people cannot see you and actually sit down and see you and See you as you. See you as you and listen to you, but assume that because you look some way, or you have an accent, that's everything you can be. And in that sense, it's hard, but for me, it has been really easy in comparison to many other people. Um, I, I, like a week and a half ago, for me was really, really complex because um, the uh, government, the uh, Trump administration, President Trump administration issue a law, so to speak, to ask the international students if we were not having uh, our courses on campus, that we will be deported, as simple as that. So for me, it was so shocking <laughs> because I was like, okay, wait, we are here, I'm not working, I'm, I'm getting my money from abroad, I am here legally, I am trying to make this country better to support and to learn from the culture. I'm doing it in the right way. There is a pandemic. <laughs> Literally, there is nothing I can do. My own country is closed. I cannot go back. There are no flights. And you are threatening me to deport me. It's like, for me, you make any sense. Somehow, and God, we have so many connections. And I some at the point, transfer it to our school that I could have my classes uh, on campus. But I was thinking, what about? so many, many, many other people that do not have that opportunity. And their lives and their entire dream or everything that they are working for are just like breaking into pieces. It's like, if that is hard for me who has all of these privileges, I cannot imagine for the immigrant. I cannot imagine for the black community. I cannot imagine for so many that have that so much harder than me and that breaks my heart because i do love university. i love what the u.s stands for it but it's painful to see that somehow we miss the point sometimes so kind of adjusting
0: more focused you know this is a side b podcast yes and um and so i would like to get your guys's thoughts on really what is the current state of side B Christian standing against or contributing to racism that you've seen or experienced? Like, where do you see this conversation happening among LGBT same-sex attracted Christians? Um, and like, as this conversation is happening, what has been your experience and what has been your thoughts?
3: I think I would say okay, because it seems like the majority of the side B community is 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 mostly white and not people of color. The majority of the majority of the rhetoric when it comes to race issues comes from, from a very white perspective, white evangelical perspective. Um and so unfortunately what what I've witnessed is kind of a a, a great dearth of white cybee Christians coming to um, defense of their black or Latino or Hispanic or um, Asian or et cetera, um, brothers and sisters. Um, and I I I it's it's very painful because like we're we're a group of people who are we're already marginalized. And then you know being a minority within a minority, <laughs> you know, being you know a minority within the LGBT community, which is already a minority in itself, it's kind of like we ought to be exceptionally aware or careful of how we navigate race issues. Because it would be very it's very hypocritical where we're like, we want to be seen, we want to be loved. We want, like for instance, um, we often talk about how we uh, many b people are, you know, put off by the how, you know, the church glorifies marriage. And you know, most of us will probably never be getting married. Um and, you know, of course the church glorifies um heteronormativity and so forth, but then often you'll see kind of a, uh, toward race issues. And it's very, it's very, it's very sad. I think that if you are, (laughs) especially if you are a part of a group that's being oppressed, you should naturally already have inside of you a desire to stand up for other people who are, um, who are being oppressed and you should lend your, you should lend your voice, um, toward helping those people in the same way that you would want, I'm um, straight people to stand up for you or people who are married to stand up for you, for you. Um, and it, it is it actually just blows me away when I see kind of a callousness in the IB community toward um, black lives matter. Um, I, I mean, very fortunately, I've not been as keen to a lot of the um, arguments that I've seen, for instance, in the, in the, the uh, community group on Facebook. Um, I've, I have been kind of shielded from that. I've not seen as much as I don't get on the group a whole lot, but the times where my attention is drawn to it, it it, it blows my mind that um, some of these, you know, and it's often, unfortunately, our our white brothers and sisters who are side B have a very calloused um, attitude toward toward um, toward toward the black plight or the plight of of Hispanic people as well or, or Asians or so forth. Um, yeah. That's that, that's that's all, and you know it. It has very far. It has far-reaching impact. Um, often, you'll see some of the, um, especially in like the POC um, subsection of the SIB community um, Facebook group. You'll you'll see um, discussions like there's there's a lot of frustration about you know this person said that you know frustration's like why aren't we further along? How can you be a part of of um, the SIB community, a part of a marginalized group, and not be not, not only not see the concern of another oppressed group, but not even care and like come up with ways of defending against black people um, calling out injustice. like it's not even it's not even the problem's not even that you don't see it. That's not the problem that black people don't we don't have. I don't think that's the problem we have. It, we're not concerned that you don't see it. We understand why you don't see it. you're you're white or you come from a privileged um, perspective. so we know why you're there or you're straight. so you come from that privileged perspective. But it's like when mm-hmm. we start pointing it out to you, we start giving you exp- <laughs> we start giving you um, a host of different experiences that kind of paint a, a, a picture of what's going on in reality. It, it amazes us when when other queer people, other side B people, are able to so quickly just shut it down and not listen. Um, it, it's very frustrating and I, I know um, uh, uh, several um POC B people who have who have left the group because of that so that's a call mm-hmm. to to my my white brothers and sisters here in the B community like if you would want someone to stand up for you in the church for you being a queer person or or, or not being married or, or or whatever you need to also give those kinds of same considerations to your your black and your latino and um, asian brothers and sisters
4: yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes sense uh, to me. I, I just know that um, uh, because the Side B community is so uh, white, even just the LGBT civil rights movement has very largely been uh, currently dominated by white voices. Um, and honestly, it's it's simply because, right, like, uh, you know, if you're LGBT and you're white, uh, you can focus all your energies on talking about your experience as an lgbt person right but if you're an lgbt person and also an ethnic minority you kind of have two things you're fighting for and you're you're giving your energy to and um you just just uh you just have more things that you have to think about and care about so uh, I, that to me um that's why uh you know the civil rights movement for lgbt people has been so uh unanimously white so far and uh yeah, and that's that's exactly as Paul said. I think it's something that we need to take into consideration. And we just call our siblings to, to, to think more about because um, just as we would want other people to fight for us, we, you know, we, we, we have to be willing to fight for other people as well. So,
2: Man, when I, when I hear the question of uh, what is the state of side B, so to speak, I think my answer is just that we have a lot of work to do. I think of the, the heart of David in, in the scriptures that um, David just fell down, in not, not in this passive way, but he made decisions to go down this path of just completely turning away from God and hurting so many people around him and abusing his power as a king and mi- misrepresenting The heart of God before so many people. And the prophet Nathan confronted him on it. And his response was to tear his clothes and to lament and to mourn and to say, You've caught me red handed and I have sinned and I'm going to acknowledge that. And there was a disruption of his life and an examination of his heart and an acknowledgement of the sin. That he committed. Um, and that's something that Side B as a whole has not done. Um, I think something that I've been learning in recent months is that when I first started acknowledging my, my own sexuality, I started asking questions like, wow, why didn't my youth group talk about um, what to do if you're attracted to the same gender. We didn't even talk about it. Um, but if I hadn't have had this personal experience with it, it would not have even been on my radar. And I started to conceive that maybe there was this people group in the church that um, was completely invisible and whose needs was, were ignored and that people just didn't care. Um, but Even as I was growing in empathy and compassion and understanding of the LGBT community, there absolutely was a disconnect for me um, between sexuality and race. As I've been going through my racial literacy class, I've been realizing that um, that just because I'm part of the LGBT community doesn't mean that I... um, I have the awareness that I need and it's taken intention to learn and to recognize how uh, my bias as a white person who's grown up in a white family, a predominantly white school, church, um, workplaces, how that has affected me. Um, it doesn't come naturally for, for me to just suddenly come out of that. And so I think, for um, and yet, there's also pain that comes from that. So I think a lot of times white people will will be like, "Well, we we didn't do anything wrong, or we didn't know, and so we can we're okay." And we only focus on the intent of our attitudes uh, or actions, but it's really the impact that counts. And the impact of apathy is deeply, deeply hurtful, and um, it it's the opposite of, of the impact that God wants us to have not only in our world, but in the family of God, within the family of God. Um, so we, yeah, I mean, as a a white person, I, I want to be the first to say, I think it is on white people, um, to, to do this, to, as Hebrew says, strengthen our weak knees. We have a lot of weakness that we haven't Done any lifting in this conversation. And I think we can easily get exhausted because when you have weak muscles, you feel exhausted and you want to give up. But we need to do the heavy lifting. Um, We are the ones who need to be the first to acknowledge uh, problems and to use our influence and our privilege, not to make ourselves look good, but to say, let me acknowledge real things that have happened. In our past, and that are happening in the present, and take ownership of on, take ownership of that, and um, and do something about that.
0: Um, something that I was thinking about, based on what you were saying, Meg, is um, I think something recently I've been learning about as I've been understanding my own whiteness and my own um, you know place in this conversation. Um, especially I would say in the conversation of racism related to the Black community in the United States, because I have spent a good eight years in the conversation about the Latin American community. And um, I think recently in the past year, getting a more better understanding of racism as a whole within the United States related to the Black community, the Asian community, and and broader, um, and getting to this place of, having a better understanding that what it means for for me to confront racism is well, at least one aspect of it um, is getting to a place of being willing to be corrected humbly corrected and knowing that I'm I've never arrived to that perfect place of being like oh yeah I've done the work I'm good now I can go on with my life
2: yeah.
0: but always staying in this place of like, I still am susceptible to just let the system move me forward and move other people down and just to use it to my advantage without thinking about it Um, and to just go on with my life and getting to this place where allowing people in my life to go, whoa, you just did this or you just didn't do this or you didn't say this in this conversation other people point out, why didn't you say something? Or even in my own heart of going, why didn't I say something? Mm. Because it's easy. It's easy for me to just sit here and not do a damn thing <laughs> because it's easy for me, but it's not for the for other people that are in my life. So I guess to wrap this up, I have one more question that I would like to end on with this. Mm. And um, because I try with every episode to see... Just where do, where do you all see Jesus in all of this? Whether, where do you see the need for Jesus in all of this? Where do you see Jesus at work already? Where we're in the midst of so much of everything that we've talked about? I,
3: over the last um, month and a half, since everything, or two months, ooh, I mean, I, everything's happened this year. I can't even keep up with time. But <laughs> since whenever this started going down, um, what I've noticed has been um, there's been an awakening. This sounds like a movie, anyways. There's like definitely been some kind of there's been a large awakening that's happening. Um, not only you know in, in society, quote unquote, secular society, but in the church, um, a lot of people are just are just waking up, and it's really beautiful. Like people are all of a sudden it's like, oh wait. Yeah, so he didn't have to do have his knee on that man's neck for nine minutes or however long that was. You're right; there must be there might be something wrong there. And it says like, "Baby, yes, thank you." Imagine that times one thousand for four hundred years. That's what we've been saying, and like, oh yes, it's it's actually very beautiful. Um, I was talking to someone on Facebook. I won't say your name, but like, I, I had posted something. Um. I don't remember what it was, but this is a lady I had, I, who I, I got to, I, I was her pastor for a little while and she was just like, I get it now. I, I'm starting, I'm starting to get it. I can't believe I didn't see it. And you know, God forgive me for not seeing it. Mm-hmm. It is, it's been absolutely beautiful and wow. It's been beautiful. And, and, and also seeing in the, I in the, political side of things like seeing some 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 only some but you know some measures being taken to (laughs) to hold these people accountable um it's not it's not enough but it's it's something and it it gives me the hope of seeing that we can make a change um it just takes more people waking up and being you know willing to be wrong um it's been so it's been very encouraging to see people just say, like, okay, I'm just stop, just stop running, honestly. Stop running and face facts. Face the facts. Let yep. let go of your white fragility. Let go of your privilege. Let go of your fears that you're going to lose something because racism hurts everybody. Um and when I see people yes. let that go, I, I uh, it just gives me a, a, a great sense of, of peace. And that I, I'm, I'm reminded that God is working justice in the earth, even when it looks like he is not. And I see his justice being worked sometimes in the small things and definitely in the big things. So I'm encouraged even as I do remain a little cynical at times. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a gay black man. What do you expect? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: I love that.
1: <laughs> well. I have some thoughts there. Um, um, Thinking about Jesus in the midst of all of this, um, I go back to the Bible story. (laughs) Um, And I place myself where when Jesus came to this earth, they were under an oppressive system, the Romans. Uh, The whole empire was racist (laughs) against them against Jews, and uh, they have all the right to be upset and traumatized. And they were looking, waiting for a political figure, a ruler, a charismatic, a a powerful, mighty warrior to deliver them. But um, when Jesus um, came, uh, he started working on a different kingdom that started in the hearts of the people. And the awesome thing of that is that he invested time in a lot of people, but especially in a group of smaller amount, in a smaller group of 12 men. And uh, when the result is that through those people, he turned the whole system up, system upside down. It didn't happen in two weeks. It took years but it happened. And we are here talking about this because of that. So when I see Jesus in all of this is that uh, we are in in almost the same situation and we need Jesus to, uh, where I see him working, so to speak, is what I want to say. It's like he's working in the hearts of many people like us uh, to work from the inside out, understanding that this is a hard issue because it's in the root of our emotional, physical, and everything in our DNA. But if we work on that, and he works on that, and he changes us from the inside out, then as a default, the society around will start being impacted. But also, he empowers people like, uh, let's say, Daniel, and he appointed them to influence. Uh, the rulers and the kingdoms and to align that to what his principles are. So what I see, and I agree uh, with Paul, is God is working in our hearts, but also we're starting to see a a small but significant enough shift uh, in the culture, in the awareness that uh, some laws are being Put in place so that is god at work jesus is being uh represented through those people who are willing to speak up uh, and i see hope and future within that but also having in mind that it is a matter that uh, is systemic but at the root of the whole thing is a heart issue If we work in our heart and we let him work in our hearts uh, to transform those dark places that we all have, the result will be a better society, a different, a change in policies and willingness to speak up and willingness to lose something of my privilege so others get the opportunity to get what they deserve as well. Um, That's where I see Jesus in the midst of Mm all. Yeah, to add to that, I think um, it's
4: precisely because uh, Jesus is bringing a new kind of kingdom, a new kind of society and a new kind of reality, reality to this earth that we can have hope that things will get better. Um, I think one of the um, things that it just uh, breaks my heart so much is to see so much uh, weariness and so much uh, so much hopelessness um, in the midst of all of this. That the more we fight, it seems like the the more the problems come up um, and the more that we speak up about it, the more stories come up. Um, the more we uncover these dark and ugly truths, the more we have to deal with those dark dark and ugly truths. And um, I think that can be, it's just a, to take on just the burden and the responsibility of that, uh, even as humans, is just so, so much to bear. And I don't know that um, any one of us can bear it on our own too. And, I think that's the whole point. Um, because at the end of the day, we can fight for a uh, just society. We can, uh, fight for all the best policies, all the, the fairest, uh, uh, rules and laws. And, uh, we can also, uh, fight for the, um, uh, most strictest accountability as well for each other. Um, but in the end, right, we, uh, the people are still going to be evil. Humans are still going to be, um, uh, selfish and greedy and prejudiced, um, and, uh, and self-seeking as well. Um, and it really, really takes Jesus coming and bringing a new reality for us to uh, recognize that there's any hope for that changing. Uh, one of the things that you'll see activists say online all the time is um, that quote that says, um, "I don't, I don't know how to tell you that you should care about other people." And I think a lot of people are realizing this right now. You know, as as activists, as 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 people who speak up, we can't ultimately make other people care about other people. Um, we just can't do that to somebody's heart. Um, it really takes a new spirit. It really takes uh, a broken and contrite spirit and heart. And it really takes an encounter with, um, the risen Lords to really recognize that there is a new reality where people can in fact have their hearts changed. People can in fact, uh, look out for the interests of other people and people can fight together for a new kind of reality. Um, and at the end of the day, um, when it becomes too weary, when it becomes too painful, when it becomes too much for one person to bear. um, I know and I hope that we can all recognize that we can rest in Jesus too. That because he took on just all the sins of the world, because he took on all the injustices, because he took on every single um, death, every single um, senseless killing, every single act of racism uh, upon himself, that we have new life. Um, that we can find hope and that we do have um, uh, hope for, for for something after death as well. And because he took all these things, because he was the one person who could take on all these things, we don't have to, and that we can, uh, at the end of the, the day, close our eyes, uh, get some sleep and rest, knowing that we are uh, doing God's good work on this earth and that we will continue to do that after we wake up.
2: There's a book I'm reading by an indigenous follower of christ named randy woodley he's a theologian and um one of the things that struck me in his book recently was talking about how um like our highest commandment as followers of christ is to love god with all our heart soul mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself so we're here to love and he said the opposite of love isn't hate because when we are hating we're actually putting energy toward a person and it takes energy um, to hate somebody but actually the opposite of love includes more like elements of apathy and uncaringness and just simply being unaffected by other people and other people's pain. And when I look at Jesus, Jesus is the absolute essential embodiment of love, right? Like God is love and Jesus is God. So when we look at Jesus, we get an example of love. And um, Jesus participated in, in this thing called kenosis, which is uh, this Greek concept of uh renouncing everything that, that was rightfully belonged to Jesus, all of his uh, basically power and privilege in having all the riches of heaven and entered into the pain of humanity. And uh, when we look at Jesus' life, Jesus was grieved by political oppression. You even look in the Old Testament and in God, um, when he saw the Israelites— being oppressed in Egypt, there's a, a grief and there's action. There was, I need to do something about this, and I'm so grieved that I'm going to be moved to do something. Um, in in the New Testament, we see um, that same God in human form being grieved by uh, the political oppression of other people groups and the social oppression. So um, seeing how Samaritans were, were seen as um, not... Not being loved by God or, or being seen as less than by their Jewish neighbors and how people were oppressed by Roman taxes. When I look at Jesus, especially the more I'm, I'm hearing from, um, indigenous and, uh, voices of color, um, I'm seeing that Jesus is embodied and encultured and local and active there's not a passivity there is a being affected by specific things that are happening in his community and specific aspects of pain uh, that are also part of a larger um, systemic injustice that is happening and um, jesus has this anchoring in the heart of the father He's always anchoring himself in prayer and in, in saying, I don't do anything other than what my father does. <laughs> There's nothing that I do outside of the father. And um, Jesus' eyes are also on shalom, this idea of making all things new and the kingdom. And in Hebrews, we read that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. And that was what allowed him to enter into darkness and death and decay. It didn't mean he glossed over hurt um, by saying, oh, it's okay because the gospel, we can just all be happy. Um, It was Jesus anchoring in the heart of the father and the hope of shalom and redemption that he was able to enter into the darkness and death and decay and suffering um, with hope. And I think that's, I mean, as followers of Jesus, literally... We have no other choice but to follow Jesus in that uh, we need to be able to walk through the valley of the shadow of death with people and to be broken um, and know that we don't have to have our hope. We don't even have to have our hope in humanity. <laughs> like, even if we don't have our hope in humanity, um, that's good. Like, with without Jesus and without the gospel, the world ends up kind of just being all these cycles of injustice and power being um, being fought over, and with Jesus, that struggle ends. Uh, it it levels the ground, and uh, we all have to give uh, an account to God. So, um, yeah, we can have we can have the same anchoring that Jesus did, and we can go the same places that Jesus went.
0: I want to thank each of you guys for being here because in um, this part of learning, I'm so grateful for each one of you individually as people and for um, the work that you're doing and for the way that you stand up for people that are oppressed because I admire each of you so much. And I'm Uh very, very thankful to have you guys here. Thanks, bro.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And thank you guys i learned a lot from you today.
0: all right well that's it for today thanks again to meg ray paul anthony and ed for joining the episode today a few things before you go though first of all if you listen on apple podcasts and you like what you hear please remember to give us a review it helps more people find us secondly If you have questions after listening to the past two episodes, our next episode in this series is going to include an opportunity to send in questions to another amazing group of panelists. And I'm so excited for you guys to hear from them. Stay tuned on our social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more information. All right, guys. Well, that is it for now. Thanks so much. And we will talk to you soon.
1: Bye, everyone.